Okay. So this uh, evening, I would like to look at uh, a concept which is very um, part of the Zen tradition, which is called no mind, and also something which I feel is very close to it, and the reason why I would say we meditate, which is uh, non-grasping. And so, you know, to start with, I'd like to read a quote from uh, the sixth patriarch, Master Wineng, uh, of the Zen tradition. So, Wineng said this, and this you find in the Platform Sutra, which is a record of his story and his teaching. And that's what he has to say about no mind. No mind is to see and to know all things with a mind free from attachment. When in use, it pervades everywhere, and yet it sticks nowhere. What we have to do is to purify our mind so that the six aspects of consciousness in passing through the six sense organs will never be colored by nor attached to the sixth sense object. When our mind works freely without any hindrances and is at liberty to come or to go, we attain liberation. Such a state is called the function of no mind. But to refrain from thinking of anything so that all thoughts are suppressed is a fault and a wrong view. So this is a quote, and that's what I like to look at uh, this evening in terms of our practice. Because often I think this idea of no mind leads people to feel that when they sit in meditation, they need to have literally no mind. It's like often there is this idea that sitting in meditation is like a lobotomy. <laughs> but I mean, this is very obvious from this quote that to have no mind, does not literally mean to have no mind, to have no thought, to have no brain. I think Wienen is showing something very different. And it's kind of, in a way, giving an indication of what is it that we are really actually trying to do when we do meditation. So he starts with, no mind is to see and to know. So again, no mind doesn't mean that you don't know anything. On the contrary, if you truly cultivate no mind, then you see and you know all things, but with a mind free from attachment. So that's the key to the no mind, is his freedom from attachment. And then he says, but when he use, when you use this no mind, it pervades everywhere. So again, this kind of idea, not that, you know, as you sit in meditation, suddenly you're going to all dissipate into this emptiness, and the end of the week there will be nothing here but just a black hole. But no, that in a way the aim of the meditation is to make us in a way more spacious, more creative. As he says, it pervades everywhere. In a way, it's kind of dissolving that limitation that we can reach everywhere. There is this pervasiveness, and yet it sticks nowhere. So again, this feeling about stickiness, because often I think what we can notice when we meditate is how sticky we are. Whatever we come in contact with, a thought, a feeling, a sensation, a sound, 
mistake. And it's kind of like we have all this level of thinking, of things sticking to us. And often we're kind of, kind of going around with all this burden of all these things sticking. And all, also sticking to them. I think it's a kind of a two-way process, this stickiness, this gooiness. And personally, <coughs> I would say that the meditation, in a way, is about de-sticking. It's about kind of, you know, de-gooing, de-glowing, kind of uh, our being, in a way. So the, we have, the Sixth Patriarch says what we have to do is to purify our mind. And again, when we think of purification, we think of getting rid of. In order to be pure, I need to get rid of this, that, and another. But again, he doesn't say that. For him, purification means that the six aspects of consciousness, so the ear, the eyes, the nose, the tongue, etc., passing through the six sense organs, the ears, etc., will neither be colored by nor attached to the six sense object. <clears throat> so the, the six patriarch is saying we have consciousness, we see things, we have organs. So in a way, we are human beings. And we all have that ability to hear, to see, to think, to taste, to smell. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we hear? What happens when we see? Are we colored or not by what we see? Are we attached or not to what we hear, to what we think? And this is where, the, again, the purity lies in, that notion of, again, attachment, which I would say grasping. Do we grasp or not? Then he goes on to say, when our mind works freely without any hindrance and is at liberty to come and go, we attain liberation. So again, liberation is not this big black hole. But actually, liberation is that we can go and come. Again, this creativity which is unimpeded. There is no hindrances, there is no blockage, there is no limitation. We are not fixed. So because of that, then there is much more movement, much more possibility of creativity. And that's what he says, such a state is called the function of no mind. So no mind is not just a state that we're trying to achieve, but actually it's this attitude of non-grasping, which again is not just like going around, I am not grasping, I'm not grasping, but it's actually a function. It's something that you must cultivate. It's something that you must apply. It's something that you must activate. <coughs> it is not a fixed state. But to refrain from thinking of anything so that all thoughts are suppressed is a fault and a wrong view. So truly, no mind doesn't mean that you stop thinking. So then when you sit in meditation, that's not what you do. I think this is something one has to be very careful about. Actually, on the contrary, I think when we sit in meditation, we help our mind to be lighter, to be more spacious, so things can rise and pass away with much more lightness. So, in a way, what I like to really look at tonight, and in terms of for your <coughs> practice during the week, you know, is when you see, when you hear, when you smell, when you taste, when you have sensation, when you have thoughts, what happens? What do you do? 
you just have a feeling, you just have feeling, feeling arising, passing away, or is it, <gasps> and you feel something and then you go into a big story around it and you're not here anymore. The feeling, the feeling has a reason, as you are sitting here, but because you put many other things together with it, then generally you go somewhere else, and very quickly we're not with the feeling anymore, or whatever it might be. So in a way, first <coughs> looking at this process of grasping, of rejecting. Because here, Huineng says to be free from attachment, no mind pervades everywhere, it sticks nowhere. But it's really looking at that moment where we grasp, where we stick, where we hold on to. And so in a way, just to, to kind of looking a little at that, how do we encounter ourselves? How do we encounter the world? Do we fix? Are we open? Is there some kind of some space? Is there some kind of like pervasiveness? Is there this possibility of movement, of coming and going? Or is it really fixed? And so in a way, it's, again, it's looking at whatever is my experience in any moment. Do I grasp or not? And how do I grasp? What is it I grasp at? So in a way, to me what is interesting to look at there is the grasping process and what happened then. And some of you have seen me do this, but this is the quickest way to show this. Okay, uh, let's say this is something very special to me and it belongs to me. It generally that has to... In order to grasp, we generally have to identify. The two generally go together. So this is very precious, it's mine, and because it's mine, I grasp at it. So I hold on to it tight. Because I think that's generally what happens with grasping. There is this tightness, there is this holding. So <coughs> if I do this to any given thing, two things happen. The first one, is that I'm going to get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and this is where the pain comes from. Often the suffering we have is a tension that results from the grasping. But actually I think there is something much more worse than that when we are grasping, which happens. And it is the fact that I cannot use my hand. I am reduced to what I am grasping at. I am limited by what I grasp at. I think this is very important to see that. So in a way, <coughs> when there is grasping, there is generally identifying, this is me, mine. Then through that there is solidification, limitation around it. And the last one is the fact that then you exaggerate what you are grasping at. I have a problem. It's my problem. It is so awful. It is so terrible. It's going to last forever after. So in a way, what we grasp, when we grasp, we actually, the thing we do is that we reduce our potential. We stop our potential from any possibility of getting activated because we kind of retrench around one thing. And we do this with anything. Let it be a sound, a feeling, a thought, <coughs> a sensation. I think this is very important to see, that in a way, that when we ask, what is this? 
When we're looking at that point, that moment of grasping, and in a way the questioning is in a way to kind of dissolve a little the fastness of doing that. And instead of saying, what is this? What is going on here? How can I be with that experience in a different way? And to me, this is what is, in a way, important about the questioning, because it addresses, in a way, directly that moment of grasping. What is this? What is going on here? What, what is happening at that point of contact? And <coughs> to see that when we grasp at anything, we basically, in a way, do three, three things. We exaggerate, that generally is very immediate. We generally exaggerate whatever we grasp at. Secondly, we generally proliferate with what we're grasping at. And from that, both, we go into abstraction. And then it's very difficult to deal with that, with the grasping, because you're not into the real what is going on. You're not in a multi-dimensional experience anymore. You are in the abstraction of the exaggeration and the proliferation. And again, I think the, the questioning can really say, what is this? And in a way, I think the questioning is to help us to come back to the multidimensionality of the moment so that then the exaggeration and the proliferation can dissipate a little. And we can really, what I would call, creatively engage with the situation at hand. So, <coughs> if I can look a little through these various, um, as from the quote, from the looking at the sixth sense, consciousness, organ, and object. Because, in a way, I know in the Zen tradition, they talk a lot about Kensho, awakening, Buddha nature. But, I mean, I might talk more about this later on in the week, but in a way, as human being, as meditator, as Zen meditator, what do we deal with? Most of the time we don't deal with Kensho, awakening, or any transcendent whatever. We deal with what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we think, what we feel, etc. That's what I like kind of to, to look at now. So eyes. So we have eyes. Because of that we have, a, from a Buddhist point of view, an eye consciousness, and then we have the visual contact with the visual object. And this is something, I think it's interesting during a meditation retreat, because you're not so stressed, you're not so busy, so you can start to look a little more. What happens when I look at something? Do I just look? Or do I look and, hmm, I like this, this is very nice. I like to have one of those. Mm, yeah, we could. Let's take, you know, it's, I mean, this is a very pretty garden. I mean, especially in the spring. Gaia House is very, I was walking at lunchtime and it's very pretty. You have lots of kind of beautiful flowers and so you can walk around and you can think, hmm, beautiful garden. I like this garden. I want to have the same garden. <laughs> and, you know, and then you go off in this all kind of, you know, why can't I have such a garden or I need to have this garden? Should, should I go and rob a bank in order to have, pay the gardener to have the garden? Oh. 
But you see, as soon as you do this, you're not with the garden anymore. You are in abstraction. You're not just enjoying the garden as it is in this moment, and in a way benefiting from it, and also sharing it with others. Everything else that is, in a way, appreciating it at this moment. So the grasping doesn't mean there is not appreciation. Again, it is coming and going. There is a freedom to come and go, the freedom to appreciate what you see. But there is not, again, that exaggeration. This is the most fantastic garden I have ever seen in my life. I want to stay here forever. No either proliferation. It's just a being with it. And so we're trying to, to look at that during the week. How, how am I with what I see? <coughs> <coughs> or you can, another good one, is uh, in the morning. I presume most people do this. I presume I do it. Other people must do it. You kind of, you know, you wake up in the morning, you wash yourself, and then you generally, you know, look a little yourself in the mirror. <laughs> and it's interesting. You look at yourself, you feel, oh, that doesn't really look like me. Oh. <laughs> you know, but what do we do? I mean, you know, I mean, we don't look at ourselves in the mirror all the time. But when we look at ourselves in the mirror, what do we do? Do we just see hmm, a little picky today? Or do we go into all kind of, again, exaggeration or proliferation? When we see somebody, what do we do? I mean, a, a, an interesting for me, I think, uh, practice in daily life, is a, a shopping mall, is going up a high street, Oxford Circus, whatever. You know, you kind of see all these shops. <laughs> and again, just to, to, in a way, to see this as a training. What do I do when I see something? When I see something attractive, what do I do? When I see something I don't like, what do I do? Ooh, I don't want this. I mean, this is to look. What, what do we do when we see something, <coughs> something which is unpleasant, which is ugly, which is, should not be there? How can, I mean, do we just deal with the thing as it is? Or again, do we exaggerate and proliferate? This is, in a way, what is interesting to see. This is a very easy way to know if one is grasping or not. Are we just, in a way, being with the multidimensionality of what we see in this moment? Or, where is the exaggeration and the proliferation going? Another thing we do with what we see is that actually we grasp at visual things that are not there. That is an interesting phenomenon. You see something, but you don't just see something. Next to it, often you see something else. Something which would be so much better if it was like that. And so in a way, you have a double vision, and you're grasping at the abstract bit of the double vision. Often I have the feeling that when people are sitting in meditation, we don't have 50 meditators here. I feel we have 100. You know, there is a double. Everybody has a double. You know, and next to you, you have generally the perfect meditator. You know? And then you're comparing yourself to this perfect meditation which doesn't move, doesn't have any pain, no thought, and of course is enlightened all the time. Right? It's a little problematic. But to see that when you grasp at something that is not there, 
then actually, again, you cannot deal creatively with what is actually there. Then there is the silence. So we sitting in meditation. Again, this is a very good opportunity. You just sit in meditation and you just hear. You just listen. So again, there is this audio consciousness, there is organ, there is object. And when we hear, what do we do? So we sit in meditation and because this is very nice guy house, so we sit and it's all this nice little birdie. Tweety, tweety, woo. Then you have the rooks. I mean, those are very good at the moment, you know, but generally we have... Rah! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when uh, in, the, in the winter, we were in South Africa, and there they have this slightly prehistoric bird called Hadida bird. They're really huge, and they're very noisy, extremely noisy. A rook is nothing compared to a Hadida bird. And the whole retreat we were there, there was one who was right next to the window, and he would really go like... <laughs> and personally, I loved it. I thought, this is great. You know, this at least, you know, keep them here. But again, <coughs> what do you do with the sound? The sound you like? Mm, I like this. I want more of it, you know, and often you proliferate. And if you don't like it, you do the same. If you don't like it, you again exaggerate this storyboard. I can't meditate, you know, and if only there was not this noise, then I really could meditate or whatever it is. What do we do with sounds? We hear them. What do we do? Do we grasp at them? Do we creatively engage with them? And then with sounds, I think what there is also, it's words. What, I mean, we hear words in daily life. We have these constantly. We hear words on the radio, on the television. People talk to us. We talk to people. And what do we do with words? Do we just listen to them with creative awareness, creative engagement? Or do we grasp? Do we identify? And generally, we exaggerate them. Generally, we kind of proliferate with them. And I think this is something we often do these kind of words, grasping at words. Because what are words? They're just, just a few waves, kind of sonorous waves, and then they're gone. Oh, I have not done it here a long time, so I will do it tonight. Okay. So I look at you all very meaningfully. <laughs> in a nice way. And I say, you are all awakened. And you say, what? Well, she said it, she said it. I am awakened. <laughs> great, great, great. And then I look at you a little differently, meaningfully, but not so friendly, possibly. And I say, you are stupid. <gasps> she said, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. But, you know, is she stupid to say I'm stupid? I mean, what do we do? It's just words. It's just, and it's gone. But sometimes we really keep these words. And recently I had a friend of mine who was very unhappy. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, oh, my husband, I think he's a bit unfriendly. He said things, you know, not friendly. I said, oh, really? So we talk more. And he said, yes, I'm so upset, you know, and he said things about, you know, the washing, and I said, really? He said, yeah, I mean, I'm so stressed by that. 
So finally I said, but when did he say this to you? Like I thought, you know, he said it like two weeks ago. She said, oh, a year ago. <laughs> and for a year, she's been so stressed by going into the washing three times a week. And to me, this is grasping. This is, in a way, grasping and not addressing the situation and kind of keeping. This is a thing. You kind of grasp and then you kind of hold on to and then you magnify it. <coughs> so in a way, looking, what do we do with uh, the sounds we hear? Then there are the smells. So, ah, you can, if you, who knows, you might find it. If you walk around here, toward the back, there is a nice tree. Very nice smell. Mmm, smell very nice. But because it's nice, are you going to stay in front of it the whole day? Because it's so nice. Oh, I like it so much. I want to stay next to it. No. You smell it, and then you move on, because there are other things to do in our life. But you see, sometimes that's what we do. We try to keep the thing. We want it to continue. Instead of saying, it has a reason, I can be with it according to the condition, and then the thing moves. There is a change, because this is a thing. I mean, grasp, non-grasping is, one could say, relatively obvious, because things change. We cannot grasp at things which will change anyway. But the problem is often we make them last longer than sometimes they need to be. Or there is unpleasant smell. What do we do with unpleasant smell? <gasps> I don't want it. I hate it. This is horrible. I'm not saying it's not horrible. But to see how you magnify it, how you amplify it, which then does not help you to deal with the situation, get rid of the rubbish or do whatever <coughs> is necessary at that moment. <coughs> then there is a taste. And I would say this is one of the last things that you've left on this retreat, taste and food. So you have lots of opportunities three times a day for contact, you know, taste. And it's interesting. Mm, you know, so you see, you smell, and then you put lots on your plates. And then you start to taste it, and it really does not taste great. And then you say, how am I going to get rid of it? <laughs> Or if the taste is good, you think, you know, you look like if there is enough so that you can come back a second time, maybe a third time, and see, what do we do? It's not that you should not do it. It's just to look what happens. How does it work when you taste something pleasant, when you taste something unpleasant? And I remember when I was... Living long ago, I, uh, I lived in uh, England for many years in a community, and there was a dread, the dreaded spring moment for me as a French person was a rhubarb moment. <laughs> that every spring in the garden there would be this lovely rhubarb, and then all the English people would say, "Ah, rhubarb, rhubarb pie," and they look so happy. And I used to think, <laughs> "What's the matter with these people?" You know? <laughs> I used to, I mean, now it's much better, but I used to think this was one of the most acidic, terrible thing to eat is rhubarb. And so, you know, I used to grasp at the acidity and think, well, you know, if it's acidic and it's bad, the people who like it must be bad too. <laughs> but, I mean, this is what you do. You know, it's not just you grasp at one thing. Generally, something else connects. You know, generally there is a proliferation and then you get the exaggeration. So, in a way, to see what happens. 
And then what's also interesting with taste is to see that often we grasp at the newness of the experience. This we know very easily with taste. If you eat something you've not eaten in a long time and it tastes fantastic, and then you eat exactly the same thing in the same way the next day and it's just about okay. Why is that? Because in the first time you grasp and you exaggerate. This is fantastic. And in a way that often that's what we do. We grasp at the newness of the experience and then we want not so much the experience but the newness of it. And I think often this happens in meditation. You sit in meditation, you have a really special experience, maybe of emptiness or whatever it is, compassion or whatever it is. <coughs> and because it's the first time for you to experience it that way, then it's amazing. It's wow! You never experienced it before. It's new. And then you have a similar experience. But you don't have this, wow, this is amazing. You think, why is not it like yesterday? It's not like yesterday because it's not new anymore. It becomes more ordinary because you have already experienced it. So I think to be careful at that grasping, I would say, at the newness, at the excitement, at the specialness of the newness. And then there is body and sensation. And I'm sure that in the first two days, it's always a bit, I mean, you've been doing very well, but I'm sure you have a little pain here and there, or a little itch here and there, a little discomfort. And to see how the way you are with the pain can be so different. At times, you really grasp at it and you think, I can't bear it. If only they did the clapper, I will never walk again. What am I doing here? This is so terrible. And at all the time, you have exactly the same pain. And you just sit there, and it is just part of the experience in that moment. But there is no exaggeration, no proliferation. There is just, in a way, this creative engagement with it. And so to me, that's what I, I to look, how it's changing. You're not grasping to the same degree all the time. Sometimes you are less grasping, sometimes more. And to me, this is what is interesting to look at. What is it that brings more grasping? What is it that brings less grasping? And again, to use the question as a means to kind of see, to kind of look deeply into the grasping. What is this? So in a way, going inside the experience instead of, in a way, going away in abstraction or exaggeration or proliferation. And then there are... <coughs> There is a mind, and there are thoughts. And I think this is very important to see how we grasp at thoughts. One minute we have no thought of a certain nature, and next we do. This is very important to see. There is a mo moment where there is a thought, and what do we do? Do we let the thought arise just as a sound, arise and pass away, or do we grasp at the thought proliferate with it or exaggerate it. Because then we can really get kind of really crushed in its abstraction. Like for example, if you feel suddenly, I am hopeless, this is hopeless. In that moment, you lose all your potential. 
because you're grasping and you're holding around this I am hopeless and it defines everything about the moment when the moment is so much bigger than that one thought you're breathing, you sing, you have all your organs working, you can move, etc. You are not hopeless at any given moment. So in a way to see, to see, I think this is getting more subtle, but to see when we grasp at a thought, when we kind of, in a way, become reduced to the thought we have, and through that, limiting our potential. Also, at that level, to look at the inner language we use, to see how we grasp at the language with which we our thoughts are expressed. And that actually different words will have different effects. That certain words really, we grasp at them nearly immediately. I mean, one of them is unfair. As soon as you say, this is unfair. In your mind, it's like, there is grasping. I am not saying things should not be fair. Of course, they should be fair. But to see what we do when we come in contact with that word in our mind, and generally, what do we do with it? Lots of proliferation, lots of exaggeration. I used to, I mean, I used to have my moments with, long ago with unfair. And I used to say to Stephen, this is unfair. And he used to look at me, you know. Is the world a fair place? I mean, there may be a different way to, because when we say this, we fix a moment, and we're not actually creatively engaging with whatever situation you are upset about, you want to do something about. <coughs> Sorry, this is a little gross, but you're not grasping at it. <laughs> So, <coughs> another thing we come in contact with is feelings. And I think, again, the question can be very useful to look. What is this when we have a feeling? Because I think we grasp that feeling so fast, you know, nearly faster than we thought. We have a feeling. <gasps> and we kind of grasp the feeling and... And we kind of just reduce ourselves to the feeling. It exaggerates, it proliferates. And I think one of the easy ones to know is fear. You have fear. And you feel like the whole is not just like a feeling. It's a whole body and mind thought. You're afraid. But when you have a, a fearful feeling, what is it about? I mean, if somebody is in front of you with a gun, fair enough. If you just had a mere accident, Fair enough. But a lot of the time, actually, nothing is happening. But we can be so afraid. But we are afraid in the future. Notice, when you are afraid, it's ahead of yourself. It's what if? What? It's ahead. You're not. Often, nothing is happening in the moment. You're perfectly okay in the moment, but there is that fear of the future. Or there is that in a way, kind of uh, creating of something that is not there. And to me, that's what was, uh, what is this was so interesting when I was in Korea, and I used to be very afraid of the dark, and we're doing this all-night sit, and so I went to, for many days, and I went to Master Cousin, and I said, but what can I do? I'm going to be so afraid every night. And he said, the question, 
do the what is this. And I thought the what is this would protect me from the bad guy out there, you know, like a magical something. So I would go out at night to the bathroom and I would feel, you know, there is somebody behind me with a knife, they're going to get me. And I would say, what is this? What is this? What is this? <laughs> then I would go to the bathroom and then over a few days, suddenly I realized I was not afraid anymore. But the reason I was not afraid was that when I said, what is this? I would come back to the fullness of the moment. And in that moment, in the middle of nowhere in Korea, who would know I was there to get me? <laughs> and so that's why I think is, that was no abstraction. That was what was going on in that moment. And so to see that in fear, we often go into abstraction. So in a way, when there is a feeling of fear or boredom or whatever it is, how can I be with it in a non-grasping way? And a non-rejecting way either. Because that you grasp at something or reject it, the same thing happens. You will exaggerate, you will proliferate, and then won't be able to really engage creatively with how it is. If I am afraid now, is there something to be afraid of or not? Or can I just be with this funny, fuzzy feeling in this moment? See it arise? Be with a while, question it a little, and let it pass away. And so I would say that to see that like the breath or the question are tools, are really tools to bring us back to the multidimensionality in the moment so that we can more creatively engage instead of, in a way, being caught in the grasping, which then reduces ourselves. And then I just have a, a little time. I had two quotes I wanted to read to you, so I'll try <coughs> to go over them a little briefly. For ordinary man or woman is Buddha, and defilements are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person, while an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. A passing thought that clings to sense object is defilement, while a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. And in a way, here the quote is very much about non-grasping. It's saying that in a way, our awakening, our Buddhahood, rests upon not some amazing state. It just rests upon, am I grasping or not? Because he says, everybody has a possibility to be a Buddha. And actually, awakening can be found within the defilement. And the way we know what is a defilement is when a foolish passing thought that makes us grasp, when another awakened thought which makes us let go, degrasp, that is awakening. So in a way, to see as we are here during the retreat, I'm fairly sure we will have moments this awakening moment where we are not grasping, but there will be this creative awareness, this creative engagement, but also in a way to be interested <coughs> in the other moment when we are caught in a way in the attachment, caught in the defilement, caught in the foolish passing thought. And see, how does it work? How do I get caught? To me, this is 
The interesting point is that moment, how do I get caught? How do I disentangle myself? And then the last quote, to let, and this is all from the Sixth Patriarch, from the Platform Sutra, to let not a passing thought rise up is mind. To let not the coming thought be annihilated is Buddha. To manifest all kind of phenomena is mind. To be free from all forms is Buddha. This is a little tricky. This. I'll, I'll do it another time. Basically saying to let not a passing thought rise up is mind. But what does he mean there? I think he's not saying stop thinking. He's basically saying stop proliferating. Be careful with proliferation. A thought arises, what do you do with it? Do you just let it rise and pass away? Or do you grasp at it and then proliferate with it? And he said to let not the coming thought be annihilated is Buddha. Here he's saying if you push away thought, that's not going to work either. Because often I think that's what people do in meditation. They sit and then they have thought, no, no, I don't want to think, I don't want to think. It's just kind of this constant battle. But that, that's not the idea either. Because thought is a natural uh, function of the brain. Thought just arises. But the question more is not to do anything with it. Not to grasp, but again, neither to push it away. If you just let it be, don't do anything, it generally doesn't last very long. And that is Buddha. And he says, to manifest all kind of phenomena is mind. And so again, he is showing the function. The meditation is not to make us robots, but actually the meditation is to help us to actualize our potential as much as we can in all many different ways. To me, the meditation in a way is kind of discovering more and more our multi-potential dimensionality in the way with ourselves, with the world, and everything in it. So again, this kind of very kind of abandoned kind of experience. And that's also part of the meditation. This is a functioning of the practice. And at the same time, if we do not grasp, there can be great abundance. But because we're not grasping at anything, then it is like, in a way, we're free from all form. Not because the form does not exist, but because we do not grasp at them. But because we, in a way, are able to let them arise and let them disappear, but can creatively engage with them if we choose to do so. So, that's what I wanted to say this evening. <coughs> Are there any uh, questions or comments? Yes? You spoke about in meditation and practice and noticing how we're grasping and not, and then, um, not grasping. So to what extent are we just noticing how we're doing that? And to what extent are we asking the question, what is this? Well, you see, I would say that uh, when, when you're not asking the question, I mean, unless you do another type of practice, but if we just talk about the what is this, I would say if you're not asking the question, you generally would be grasping. You know, I mean, you'll be somewhere else. When you ask the question, you're just asking the question. So in a way, 
to me, what is interesting is not kind of either or. Is more in what I found interesting in terms of the meditation process is to see where do I go. What is it that, in a way, to me, I'm very interested in the mental uh, patterns, the kind of mental habits, emotional habits, physical habits, and I think that that moment of going away is very revelatory. So. I would not say to be all the time kind of watching out, you know, where am I going? <coughs> but generally, just when you come back to see, oh, I was there. So, so that you start to know more, you know, kind of, because often it's very automatic. And I think that what is this helps us already to break through the automaticism. But I think to see the automaticism also can help. I mean, now I don't do it very much, but I used to have this uh, habit of luggage, making my luggage in advance. So I sit in meditation, what is this, what is this, and then you know, luggage going to Florida or whatever, you know, six months in advance. And until I saw, ah, this is a luggage loop. And now I see, ah, luggage loop, I don't need to do it now. <laughs> but in a way, you need to see it in order to, let, to, to be able more to let it go. So I think it goes together. So you, you know, you generally just do the question, but time to time notice, where was I? You know? Not so much like, why did I go there? We all know why you went there, because you know, your, your energy level went off, or you're preoccupied or whatever, but more think, what was it? I think, can be interesting time to time. So the this can be this experience, Huh? The this, when you say what is this, is the this, the current experience, always the current moment? <coughs> oh, this is a long one. Um, I'll talk maybe more about this tomorrow morning, because you see, the this, you see, you, it can be interpreted in many different ways, traditionally, non-traditionally. Uh, personally, I, would, I use this, not as a mean to refer to anything specific, but as a mean to make one enter into the moment more directly. That's the way I would look at the this. But I'll talk more about this tomorrow morning in the instructions. Yes? Um, could you comment on um, the grasping out of thoughts from the past? This is, as you're speaking, I realize I do this quite a lot. That it's memories that will come back, usually the same memories of particular painful events from the past that I have strong feelings attached to them. And I've realised how much I can't dwell on them and maybe I am actually proliferating them more than need be. Yeah, I mean, this is <coughs> very interesting because you sit here and in a way this is re the relative present, I would say. I mean, you always have past, present, future movie. You know, you don't have present, not moving, but, you know, and generally the past is a few weeks, a few years. And it's very interesting because you sit here and you're just watching the breath or doing the question and suddenly, you know, it, something comes in. And it could be just, you know, I think it's just kind of, you know, we have such a big treasure uh, of uh, memories and thought and images and words. And so, in a way, these things from the past, could we consider them in the moment? Because, I mean, they have a reason in the moment. 
just like a sound that just happened. It just happened. And because you generally don't have much identification and storyline about the sound, generally you don't do anything with the sound. You rise <coughs> and you pass away. But with the memory, there is identification, this happened to me, then there is generally kind of, you know, judgment, this is bad, this is good, and then one goes round, as you said. And then actually you start to feel the pain from 10 years ago or a year ago, but actually it was not there. So I think with the past to see that, you know, it, if one really need, want to think about it to kind of more reflect and see it as a compost, learning from it, but to see that what we do generally is more what I was describing, as you notice, is this exaggeration, this proliferation, which actually makes it something quite big in this moment when, when it started, it was just a little something. So in a way, it's to, to, to see how can there is memory, because we have memory. Memory are part of our brain process. The meditation is not there to stop memory. But more, whatever memory arises in my mind, how can I be differently with it? How can I just see it arise? See, yes, this is past. It's a bit like my luggage. It's kind of like there is this loop, this past, painful loop. Can I just, in a way, let it be there then? Or if I need to think about it when it's more kind of useful, maybe because I'm going to meet the person or whatever it is. But to see that when we sit here and nothing is going on, generally you just go round and round and it becomes very painful. So again, to whatever arise, this is the thing with the, this no mind and this non-grasping. Can we look at whatever arise in a different way? We don't grasp at it, we don't reject it, but how can we creatively engage with it? Sometimes a creative engagement is to say, I need to look at this in a certain way, or I just need to let it arise and pass away and not do anything with it. So to see again that there can be many different kind of way to be with it. I think that's what the normal grasping can help us, to have more space around this. So again, <coughs> it's not like kind of, you know, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. But to notice what happens, to see that you do it, this is the first thing. See that you do it. And then to see, how can I be with memory, images, whatever it is, in a different way? Uh, yes. I noticed a, a deep connection between the inquiry process and choiceless awareness. And I wonder where the trick seems to come in is when one sets an intention or a goal it's, it seems that that's where the, 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 the stickiness gets particularly difficult. Would you say, speak to that? <coughs> yeah, I think, you see, <coughs> I think in terms of meditation, there is a big spectrum from very focused to very open. And I think we can, according to different methods, according to different tendencies, we go up and down on the spectrum from being very focused to being what is called uh, spacious open awareness. And in a way, at one level, this what is this could seem to be kind of like, generally it's treated as being very focused nature. 
But I think it's again according to how you do it. Because if you just, in a way, just see it more as kind of like not digging a hole, because often it's seen that way, kind of, what is this? What is this? Personally, I think this is not very helpful. I see it more as kind of like a diving board in order to kind of plunge into a pool of perplexity. So more throwing the what is this in the moment. What is it? And in a way, staying with that sensation of questioning which doesn't have any limit or border or anything, but at the same time is quite vivid. Because in a way, one of the things with spacious awareness is that sometimes it's too spacious and you kind of, you know, nearly spaced out. So again, it's kind of, sometimes you can have the question which is too tense, which I would say is not, uh, that's not the way, I would not encourage to do it that way at all. And I think awareness is very good, but again, to see, is it kind of too loose? Or is there some kind of vibrancy to it? To me, this is, again, these two elements of quietness and clarity, of stability and openness. And also, <coughs> I'll talk a little about it tomorrow, it's what is behind the intention? You know, you just question and throw the question open-ended in the moment, or you ask the question because you want something. You see, as soon as you want something very specific, you set yourself up. I want to be, even with awareness, I want to be aware in this way. I want to question in this way. So, personally, I see the question as um, kind of just like throwing, like throwing the pebbles in the pond, and then you have the repulse. I, I see it very much that way, steadily throwing the stone. What is this? Just staying with the repulse again. What is this? And in a way, to be careful a little, but I'll talk more about this in the instruction, about the expectation versus aspiration. But I'll look at it tomorrow morning. Okay, I think we have to do some walking meditation. Thank you very much. And we meet again here at 8.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.